0: What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, it is Steve Larson of Instead. But before we get started, gonna do another Fred Hammer giveaway. Uh, the new Annihilation Time CD is out, or it's a repress of the first CD, the first LP that Fred sang on. So uh, get at me. The first two people that email me at 185milesouth at gmail.com, let me know you want that CD, and Fred's gonna hook you up. Uh, domestic only. I apologize to uh, the the fans of the pod in Europe, especially the Crystal Palace supporters in England and my boys in Sweden. But yeah, so hit me up, 185 miles south at gmail.com. First two get that Annihilation Time CD and you're fucking stoked. Now, please support the pod. Uh, you got to subscribe to it wherever you listen to it and share with your buddies, repost it on social media, whatever you can do to get the word out. That is much appreciated. If you want to go the extra mile, you can go to patreon.com slash 185 miles south and become a Patreon. You can toss down $1 a month, gets you behind the paywall, or if you can do more and support, that is much appreciated. Uh, Trying to do a Patreon podcast for basically every interview. So, you know, I'll interview Steve on this uh, week's pod and in five days, four or five days, There'll be a Patreon podcast coming out where I'll have some buddies on. We'll discuss the pod. We'll discuss the discography of whoever I interviewed. And uh, it's a good time. In fact, some of those pods we've done, some of the Patreon ones, I think they're the best stuff we've done. Um, You know, especially like the Hartsfield one, the Mandel one, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, let's get on with the pod. Hundred eighty
1: five miles south, a hardcore punk rock podcast.
0: What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, it is Steve Larson of the legendary band Instead. How are you doing, Steve? I'm doing good, Zach. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this. It's uh, my pleasure. Cool. Um, let's jump right in. And, uh, do you remember how you got into punk and hardcore? Um,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty typical of, uh, most people's stories. I I had an older friend who was probably two, I think he was two years older than me, maybe three, but, um, he's kind of a, a nihilistic, uh, type of dude. And, uh, you know, he introduced me to, to like GBH and, Dead Kennedys and, and, you know, punk and and English punk. Um, And from there, it just grew, you know, like I started recording um, a radio show, this local in Orange County, Los Angeles, called Rodney on the Rock. And um, Rodney on the Rock really gets more credit than anyone else besides my friend Neil. um, In that he really was bringing a lot of, underground punk and, and hardcore and playing it regularly on the weekends on KROQ, So, uh, you know, that's where I first heard youth brigade. That's where I first heard, um, minor threat, uh, bad brain, things, things like that. That's when I like transitioned into American hardcore from, uh, American punk and English punk.
0: Yeah. I wish I could have heard, uh, clean cut American kid for the first time on riding on the rock. (laughs) Yeah. That's the first time I heard it. I don't think
1: for a second I didn't go out and buy it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so cool. That that comp is wild too, because it's like part punk and then part. I don't know how to describe the other stuff. I'm pretty. I'm pretty uh, narrow minded, I guess, on my musical taste in in the well, guitar format.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was definitely eclectic, and it was, but it was really important, um, especially at that time. I
0: think. Yeah, so is is that like uh, 83, 84 when you're getting into this stuff?
1: Yeah, you know, um, probably maybe like even 82 a little bit. Um, I'm putting my toe in the water. I don't really know, you know, what's happening to me, for lack of a a better term. But um, he's he's basically just laying all these bands on me. And uh, my parents were fairly, they weren't fairly young. They were young when they had me. They were 20 years old. And my parents were really into music. Um, They were record collectors, but they were into, you know, 60s and 70s rock, you know? So, like, I remember waiting in line at Liquor's Pizza with my dad to pick up, you know, one of the Led Zeppelin releases on the day it came out. So, uh, you know, that kind of thing was already normal in my house. Loud music going all the time was just loud classic rock. You know what I mean? But um, for me you know even even you know with with classic rock some of it being kind of rowdy it was nothing compared to hearing you know the dead kennedy's um nazi punk fuck off you know and you know looking back at you know getting into it like the lyrics the nihilism didn't appeal to me necessarily um but the sound and energy and emotions of it did does does that make sense what i'm saying
0: i think it does Yeah, absolutely. uh, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of the birth of hardcore, right? Like the the difference between like the punk and the hardcore.
1: Right, exactly. And so while I love the, you know, all those things I just laid out, the sound, the energy, the emotions that I, that I heard, and I wasn't, you know, politically advanced at, you know, 13, 12, 13 years old, but I was like, wow, this is, this is for me, you know? And so I started gravitating, you know, towards, exclusively listening to stuff like that. Um and my parents were really cool, which is um, you know, it, it usually sets one way or the other. Like parents are really against it and afraid of it, for lack of a better term. Or they're you know, they support the kid and since my parents were into music and and uh, you know, some of that stuff was cutting edge when you know, when they were coming up, some of that classic rock, they they understood and they let me be. You know, they never told me like this is satanic or this is, you know, whatever they just they just let me be and let me keep discovering
0: sure do you how long after you you start listening to music do you go to a show and do you go with like your older friend
1: so yeah that's kind of a. let's see uh you have to excuse me at 51 some of these memories you know like blend into one memory um when it's actually not true so as i'm sitting here going through this with you i'm gonna be sorting through my own recollection <laughs> so what i can say is flatly my friend neil um was he listened to punk but he wasn't active in in the scene in any way shape or form so i you know he wasn't he wasn't he didn't live in my neighborhood i he, his grandparents did so i would see him like every other week or something like that and for you know saturday and part of sunday and and so I had a lot of time to myself and what I started doing was just kind of branching out on my own um, and getting deeper and deeper into it than he was even. And so um, I, I actually didn't go to any shows until I was a sophomore in high school, I think. Maybe, maybe a freshman, but definitely a sophomore in high school, you know, uh, just got to ride Defenders or Flashdance. I don't even remember what my first show was, to be honest with you. Um, because it just seemed like at that point in my life, I was just constantly listening to punk and hardcore and ska. Um, and I always had eclectic taste in music and maybe eclectic isn't the right word. You know, I like, I like the, uh, you know, early ska. I like classic rock um, shamelessly. Um, I love punk and hardcore, but I, I really Um, I used to get made up fun of a lot because I was really into what they called at the time, college rock. Um, you know, like I would, I would get REM records and I would get, um, uh, shoot, I don't know, fill in the blank with any college radio band at the time, you know, in the early eighties, people are like, what are you listening to? You know? But, um, anyways, uh, I wish I could share with you what that first show was, but I really don't recall what it was. Um, I can say some of the earliest shows I saw were uniform choice just before screening for change came out. Jesus. What was, and, what was that like? Oh my God, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let me, let me, you know, I, I hate, uh, you know, going all over the place, but unfortunately it's going to need to work that way because you're going to jog different memories from, for me. So at some point on Rodney on the rock, I hear minor threat. um, I am from a lower middle class family with a lot of drug and alcohol problems uh, on both sides, my mom's side and my dad's side. So everybody around me was just, I felt like I was constantly surrounded by parties, like, you know, people at our house, that's going to someone else's house. Again, my parents were young, right? Um, and, you know, I was just seeing all these people bottom out around me and, and to be honest and, perfectly transparent I was going that route too at a very early age probably 12 years old it was the first time I was drunk you know and uh, I didn't like it I didn't like where I was going but until I heard Minor Threat and was like that really and I've heard this a lot on your podcast but it changed everything for me because then I was like wait a minute there's other people that feel like I feel this is amazing now hardcore's taken on a whole new perspective for me now I'm not, you know, just listening to nihilistic uh political lyrics. I'm 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 listening to suburban kids were pissed off about everybody being drunken, drugged out buffoons around them. Um so going back to what you were asking originally, uniform choice, man. Uh I, I, I never got to see Minor Threat Live let's get that out of the way. Uh, but uniform choice was, that was a, a life changing experience in itself as well. Um, Pat Dubar was like a big brother to all this, the, the straight edge kids, um, or the, you know, the kids that weren't down with, with, uh, all the nastiness that, that, that permeated our orange County and LA shows. And, uh, it, the guy took shit from no one, and um you know just watching the energy of that you know when they were still fresh it was i I was just like, how do I get more involved in this this is this is this is where I need to be at all times,
0: yeah I mean it has to be the closest thing to seeing minor threat seeing you see in their prime you
1: know yeah I, I mean I think. You know, watching videos of Minor Threat, I, I can only imagine, or or you know, early Bad Brains, how mind blowing that would be. And you know, I I feel it maybe it'd be a little reckless to say, you know, that it compares because you're talking about, you know, quite a few years earlier and hearing sounds like that for the first time, um, must have been I I can't even imagine what that was like. I can tell you what the experience of seeing Uniform Choice was like. And you know,
0: but if you're then, but, but if you're connecting to the minor, well, if you're connecting to the minor threat records like that, then I I think and you miss them. I think the closest thing is the UC because of ah. the, the aggression of the music plus the message. It's is absolutely,
1: absolutely, and and you know, Dubar was a smart guy and he was also a physically fit jock. You know, and I don't I don't want to label him a jock because you know jock has bad connotation but he was a he was a good dare i say elite athlete and so you got some guy up there in in plaid pegged pants and van skater shoes shirtless head shaved he was fucking pissed off man and and i felt safe and i felt like these this is my tribe and uh I, i i was all in after i saw them the first time you know was seven seconds with them that night I saw them? I don't know. I don't know if it's one show or two shows, but I, I definitely saw, if not the same night, close nights together, um, seven seconds um, before the crew and Uniform Choice right before um, Scream for Change came out. And those two events changed me forever.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I believe it because I think that in instead... Is the closest to seven seconds. Um, oh, but thanks, Sorry. that's that's really nice of you to say. But we'll get there. Can you talk a little bit about? Um, you refer to like the nastiness in the scene. Can you elaborate yeah. on that for for us that didn't come around until the nineties?
1: Yeah. So I mean, I'll use a place like Fender's Ballroom. Is where I could probably draw the 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 most um, for that answer a little bit of the country club. You saw a little nastiness there, but you know, when you go to Fenders, Fenders was a big, I want to say it was at least a thousand people, probably more like 1500 that they jam into that. It was a big wide venue. just like a banquet hall and, uh, um, hence Fenders ballroom. Right. So, uh, it, it was just like, number one, it was in a terrible neighborhood. um, in long beach and i don't know that my parents would have been cool with me going where i was going had they actually known um it probably was allowed to happen because they liked my friends and my parents were it was a different era too you know like parents uh didn't this is going to sound wrong but they didn't know as much as we know now about the dangers of places and and how in in how much you can keep track of your kids now and I'm speaking from, from experience having three children myself. But um it was, you know, there was the lads, there was Circle One, there was the Mickey Mouse Club, and I'm sure I'm forgetting others. But it it was purely I'm sure some of those guys were there for the music, but a lot of them were there for the chaos and, and the potential violence. And I clearly remember being, I, I think it was GBH at Fenders. Um, those, pills, those bills were so eclectic back then, and and I I really um, miss how we got away from that later on in the '80s. But that's a that's another question or another part of the story. Um, but I clearly remember, uh, you know, being at the edge of the pit, up towards the front of the stage, and and I could literally, as loud as ear blistering as it was, I could literally hear the sounds of fists hitting faces, boots hitting heads, ribs. Like it was just, it was nasty, man. So you know, it it, it was really no different than the streets. Um, and again, you know, I was lower middle class, probably closer to lower class than middle class. I grew up in a, a you know a poor neighborhood, and there was a lot of violence in my neighborhood. And so for me, it wasn't so bad because I learned how to, how to function, um, in, in gang areas in, in that, you know, like just the acknowledgement of somebody or a group of people in a gang, when you're walking by without making too much eye contact, without looking like a victim, those things pay off, you know, and those are things that if you're not in those areas, you don't even think about, you know, so for me, cinders was a lot the same as my neighborhood, with you know Gdh or uh, Fang or or Doctor No as a backdrop to violence. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's your neighborhood with a sick soundtrack.
1: Yeah, exactly. A way better soundtrack than my neighborhood. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean unless you're into unless you're into oldies. I mean, those are cool. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it is. Um, no, but I mean, it makes sense to connect with a band like Uniform Choice where you feel safe, right? If you're getting fucked yeah. with, like the singer might fuck that guy up.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. But Pat would be off the stage. He would be on the mic, you know, just fearless, absolutely fearless. And then it just became like as 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 Straight Edge in Orange County and L.A. grew and grew and grew, it, it just became like, you know, uh, strength in numbers, to be honest with you.
0: Yeah. So, when do you decide to not just be a showgoer and you want to start participating? Do you have you played drums for a long time, or did you start playing drums to be in a punk band?
1: Yeah. So, okay. So let me let me back into this as well. So when I was like ten years old, we were at a party at my one of my parents' friends' house, and uh, I went to go use the restroom, and and I went in the wrong door, and there was this sparkle blue Ludwig kit in the room that I walked in and it was like, it was literally like, you know, the scene where they, they pull the, the, where the guy sees the, um, the art in Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) Like, like that's what I was, I was just standing in the doorway. Like, Oh my God, this is, how do I get one of these, you know? And I knew, and knew what it was, but I can tell you at 10 years old, instantly I knew that I wanted to play drums right then and there. And, And so I held on to that thought, and when it was time to go into junior high, um, I wanted to sign up for band because I wanted to learn how to play drum set, you know? And my parents didn't have the means to get me lessons, and so it was an opportunity to to go after it, and my goal, honestly, was to play well enough to play in a band. When I first had this thought, it wasn't about punk bands, and then eventually it became, I want to be good enough to be in a punk band, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, what I didn't know going into junior high was, well, they don't teach you drum set right out. You got to learn how to hold your sticks. You've got to learn how to play the snare drum. You've got to learn how to play the, the, you know, the, the marching bass, you know, things like that.
0: You get stuck on the kettle drums.
1: Right. Exactly. Things like that. Yeah. You're talking about concert band, you know, and stuff like that. And, and, uh, so, then, you know, I wrote it out. I, I knew that being in the band, you know, the school band at the time was a, was a, you know, (laughs) mark of the squealer. Um, it was like, (laughs) you're, you're, you're a band geek, you know, you're marked. The thing for me too, is I was an athlete as well. So I had this weird at that time, and this may sound absolutely ridiculous in this day and age, but at that time, People didn't do sports and bands. Just very, very few people did. And uh, I can say that while I did it, I didn't know anybody who did through junior high and into high school. So I was willing to, to take any criticism, which I got very little of because it turns out like just people were cool with me in general, you know. So um, I that probably made it easier to stick with it, too, to be honest. But, um, I, I, you know, I stuck with it. I got a little bit of introduction to drum kit and then going into high school, um, all the drumline guys really took me in. And that was a whole different vibe, like going into high school marching band. And I was, you know, playing football and playing baseball, but in, in, in high school in the summer, you're, you're doing, you're basically training like you train for football season. So I was bouncing, you know, like I'd go to, I'd go to band camp in the summer and I would leave there for a little while, go do my, my hell week for football. You know, the, you know, the days of the hell week were like almost in direct alignment and then come back to band camp, beat the shit, sweaty, whatever, you know? Um, And it was just a means to an end for me, you know? And I got to know some guys, I got to know more about drum, drum kit. I, you know, knew how to read music enough. Um, everything was coming together as planned, and then eventually, I somehow got my parents to agree to buy a drum set that they probably couldn't afford, and uh, and at that point, um, w- where I lived in a very small like craftsman bungalow in Anaheim, and uh, it was literally like a 800 square foot house, but it was just me and my parents, and uh, but we it was like on a big big piece of land, you know, so the. Um, the garage was a two car garage and it was like way away from the house and back. And there was like, it, it, it went, it backed up to an alley. So like I could go out there, set up my drums. I like soundproof walls, put up mattresses, aid crate, anything I could find and just started putting on headphones and playing along to whatever I could, you know, and I was playing along to fear the record. I was playing along to mommy's little monster, 1942, social distortion as well. So, that's kind of, did I answer the question or I get way off base here? I've lost myself.
0: No, that was, that was more than I could have asked for. That was awesome. Right. All right. Cool. man. Thanks. Yeah. So how do you, is instead your first band?
1: Well, yes. Uh, I mean, besides doing like, you know, like a punk cover band that, uh, in high school, like at, at pep rallies and, and, uh, backyard parties and stuff, um, literally covering like, um english dog songs and uh doggy style songs and <laughs> that so what happened is specifically when we would do the doggy style song uh we would do donut chop rock and then kevin hernandez the singer of instead would grab the mic and and then the place would go H it because we were doing like backyard parties backyard parties were really big in the mid 80s you know early 80s mid 80s they're just Somebody would get a couple of kegs, charge five bucks, have us in the backyard as entertainment. People would do what they thought was punk and pit, you know, get wasted, get high. And, and then, like I said, eventually Kevin started doing donut shop rock with us. And it was like, wait a minute, this guy is actually a good front man. And, um, people were into it, you know, like our, our friends we had a group of friends in high school that were into punk. Like my, my school was, was largely Hispanic. And I would say probably I'm guessing at the time, probably 70% Hispanic, 20% white, 10%, you know, mixes of Asian black, whatever. Right. So all the white kids at Anaheim high school were into surfing, skateboarding, hardcore, or metal like that's what everybody did you know so we were getting a lot of support even though it was probably only a handful of people looking back um, and it was fun too like it was fun like when Kevin would grab the mic it was more fun than when the singer of our little cover band was singing right everybody got super excited so um, then, then in, it, it basically that band evolved into instead and writing original music to answer your question.
0: And how does that feel to start writing original music? And, and who's the catalyst of that?
1: Um, I had a lot to do with that. Um, you know, basically, Kevin was two grades ahead of me. Um, the original, one of the original guitar players, uh, Bill McLaughlin, was a year ahead of me, maybe two years ahead of me as well. Um, and there was his brother Tom, who was in my grade, Tony Garcia was in my grade, so that was it, right um, And Kevin was like this punk rock weirdo at our school, like bondage pants docs like he was punk as fuck you know <laughs> and I remember like he used to embarrass me like I'd be sitting um on the bench outside the locker room, like just putting on my cleats and whatnot, getting ready for football practice, and he'd roll up in his in his full painted leather with spikes on it and bondage pants and socks. And he always wore a, um, a fisherman's hat, you know? Uh, And, and he would just come sit down next to me and like put his arm on my shoulder and be like, what's up, Larry. He he used to call me Larry instead of everybody called me Larson. He called me Larry to this day. He called me Larry. (laughs) And he's like, you know, basically just trying to sell me on the idea. Like we should just do this, you know? And so I don't even remember if we had a discussion with the, the guy who was singing in our cover band. Cause essentially, like I said, all we did was swap singers and, and then we had a half pipe in the backyard of the McLaughlin brothers uh, garage where we rehearsed. And, uh, that half pipe, uh, got us some notoriety as well. Like these guys would love to come, you know, skate like, you know, it was just like a four foot half pipe. So like a mini, you know, um, like guys like big time guys came and skated that ramp. Um, and you know, big time skaters at that time pros. And it was cool for them. We were in the garage making music. It all seemed normal. Every, all those things went together. Um, but going back to your question, it was just a natural, um, evolution, you know, and, and that's the, the best way I could describe it. It was an evolution into what we did. And I was really into, even though I didn't know how to play guitar, um, I understood things like song structure and, and whatnot. So I had a lot of ideas that I was able to say mouth mimic to our guitar player. Like, I remember distinctly live and let live. him, so, um, yeah, I want to do something like, tic-a-tic-a-dunna, tic-a-tic-a-dunna, and it became a big part of a, a big song for us, you know? So, um, again, you know, in a nutshell, it was just natural evolution.
0: Yeah, you're speaking my language with the mouth mimicking. I still have to do it to our guitarist, <laughs> but, right? And I play guitar in a band forever, but uh, I'm not good enough to to write the songs that we have. <laughs> so right, right. Get a mouth mimic. So you do a demo in 1986, um, correct? Where do you record this? And and how does it feel to like come out of doing something and being able to listen to yourself?
1: So none of us had any recording experience whatsoever. Um, we went, I want to say we went somewhere in Long Beach. I really don't remember where we recorded it, but it was just like a, a little eight track, half inch, eight track studio, nothing fancy. Like some guy that kind of knew what he was doing, but not really. Um, and I don't remember how we got hooked up with him or anything. I don't, all that is lost on me. Um, I feel like it was in a basement somewhere and there, you know that's weird too this there's not a lot of basements in southern california but um we recorded with this guy and and it was it was a weird process it was a learning we were all learning as we were going um, but i think if i remember right on on the demo we still recorded it all live we didn't really overtrack anything maybe vocals got overtracked because I can say when we went to go do bonds of friendship, I still did not understand multi-tracking completely by the time we entered the studio.
0: Yeah, do you do shows before the demo? Like, are you are you playing? Is it mostly just backyard, or are you playing actual?
1: Yeah, we're yeah we're just doing yeah we're just doing backyard parties at this point. I think the demo's out before we play our first club show, was which was at uh, Big John, which um, you, in Anaheim.
0: Okay, and can you describe that club? What was it like?
1: it was just a pool hall and you know, like ai don't want to say it was a biker bar cause it wasn't quite a biker bar, but it was a dirty seedy pool hall, um, right next to some railroad tracks. Um, and, and strangely I am walking distance. So I work walking distance away from where the club used to be, <laughs> but, um, but it was a big deal. They had a, they had a stage, they had a PA, you know, and, um, yeah I I, somebody just recently sent me the flyer for that show like in a text like hey
0: check this out and I was like damn so So, but it was all it it was all ages and your friends were able to go
1: it was yeah it it was all ages even though they had a bar in there I don't remember how they separated that out because I know it wasn't
0: you know like the traditional big
1: black x on the hand or anything like that um but but yeah they were definitely able to go in
0: yeah so what was that like playing your first show
1: um, well, it was, <sighs> <laughs> God, um, such a mix of emotions. You're nervous. You're excited. You're grateful. I mean, doggy style is uh, who the doggy style. I think doggy style. Yeah. Doggy style was our first show, our first club show. And Kevin was friends with Brad Xavier and, and Lou, the drummer. Um, they all played in like a men's basketball league somewhere. You know, they all knew each other from, you know, playground, you know, uh, pickup hoop games and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, we all loved doggy style too. You know, they were Fullerton or Placentia and, and we were Anaheim boys and, and, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of good punk came out of that area, um, before us. And you, you know, you're thinking about Huntington beach and the just orange County had a lot of good punk that came out of it. Fullerton in particular. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was just a, it was a mix of emotions, but I had been playing in marching band. I played football, you know, Like I was used to being in front of an audience, you know? So for me personally, I was more excited than anything else. That was the thing I, I felt
0: most. I was excited to be doing it. Do you have, is there a lot of friends there? Like, do you get a good, like typical reaction So, it's a small
1: show. You know, Doggy Style is is, uh, coming towards the tail end of, like, their popularity. Um, They were never huge, you know, but they... um, And, of course, we were an opener, and I think there was a band. I think we were the opener, and there was a band in between us, and then Doggy Style. Um, But, you know, I mean, yeah, we were well-received for the, the, you know, let's just say, I don't remember if there was 30 people there, or Seventy-five, but the small amount of people reacted well to us.
0: Yeah, and then what are what are these years like in between the demo and then recording Bonds of Friendship? Do you just do you play a lot locally, and do you start to build up like a fan base?
1: Yeah, yeah, um, a, a small fan base. We're like doing parties with half off, and and, uh, and and yeah, just doing some small club shows, and then we we I think we did another show at um, at Big John's with Final Conflict. Um, Ron, Ron, uh, Martinez was always really, really cool to us. I still a cool guy. I love Ron Martinez. So, um, and Final Conflict, again, a band that we grew up, you know, dare I say idolizing, but you know, it was a big deal to us. You know, um, you're, you're now like, you know, I've transitioned now from being a fan to being part of something, you know, and I'm still a pen pal with people all over the United States and, in Europe. And, and, you know, I'm still just exchanging letters and, you know, putting wax on stamps so people can reuse them and trading calling card numbers. Cause that was a big deal for a while. So we could all talk to each other. We'd send each other, you know, calling card numbers and you'd get free long distance. Um, Buying records. I, I did most of my record buying locally, but I would trade stuff in the mail. Um, So I'm just completely immersed in, in hardcore, like one and hardcore and punk. Just, I feel like I'm going to shows a few nights a week. Um, if I'm not at, at, at football or baseball practice or playing a game, um, I'm at a show or I'm, or I'm practicing on my own or I'm practicing with instead, like it's just, it's just nonstop. I'm in constant motion doing one of those
0: things. Yeah. Real quick as a sidebar, do you think that Final Conflict is one of the most underrated bands of all time? Cause, Absolutely. Cause Jesus, they've ripped for so long and they still rip. Yeah, I agree. 100%. Definitely underrated. Yeah. Um. Another little just sidebar before we get to the LP. Um, sure. There's, there's a demo bootleg that comes out, but it doesn't appear to be the same like track listing as a demo. Do you know what that mm-hmm. is? The will be remembered. Um,
1: yeah. You know format? what? So I, I think, somebody sent me one and I've never put it on the turntable. I, 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 and it sounds terrible. I know. Um, I'm not somebody who enjoys listening to my own music. Um, but, uh, I can, what, what can you tell me about it? I don't remember much about it. I remember seeing it, but I don't remember much about it.
0: I can pull up the track listing and I was trying to, trying to figure out exactly what it was. Uh, track listing. It's up to you, your choice. Never last, untitled, proud youth, keep the faith, and don't give up.
1: So somebody's obviously like just taken lyrics from songs and tried to make them
0: song yeah. titles is, I think, what's happening, right? It might just be the demo and they titled everything wrong.
1: It, it could be. Um, did you say keep, keep right on there?
0: One more time. Let's see here. Shout out discogs.com. Uh, it's not listed. Not listed. Okay. Keep the faith is listed. Yeah. So that ended up being faith on bonds. Right. Right. Yeah. So I just, I didn't know if there was a second demo. I guess that was my, no, there's one demo. Okay, cool. So going in, you record bonds of friendship and this is iconic LP. I mean, partially for the style. It comes out in 1988. The LP cover is iconic as you can get. And this thing's fucking awesome. Can you can you talk about going in <laughs> to record it?
1: Well yeah, I mean I, I, I really appreciate the kind words. I, I we have different views of it, I'll tell you that much. Um I oh, sorry. It's all good? Life calls. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm trying to kill it right now and I anyways, um so Going where? Where would you like me to start the cover?
0: Uh, yeah, and and I don't have it pulled up, but the cover is very similar to like a. Uh, is it Mike Gibbs? Something like that? Are you going to go there? That the cover is exactly no, like. Oh, okay, it's it's exactly like a a jazz record.
1: Yeah, yeah, I've seen that, and I I don't know anything about it that other than somebody sent me that cover right mm-hmm. um, that that predated Bonds of Friendship right. Right. What 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 happened to me was. Um, I would get shuttled off to my, my grandmother on my father's side, um, when my parents were, you know, needed a babysitter and she wasn't a very maternal person. Um, unfortunately, but you know, like if I wanted to go, so what would happen is she would just put me in front of the TV and, uh, you know, like Lawrence Welk show would be on the entire time. I'd be like, this sucks. So what, what she did have was an epic, collection of National Geographic magazines and and Life magazines. Like just decades of them. And so I would sit there and just go, go through those magazines and look at photos look at photos look at photos so when we were when we were working on the demo somewhere around that time I remembered a photo that I had seen in one of her Life magazines and it was the photo of those three kids uh, from bonds of friendship. Right. So I went and got it. And then my cousin was a, was a pretty good artist. Um, and I asked him, look, I don't know how to get hold of this photographer. I actually think he's dead. And um, you know, I think it would also just be cooler if you could draw it like in pencil. And he's like, yeah, I could do that. And so he did that. And he's the same guy who also drew Chet from the, you know, the back of the instead shirt. I don't know if you know who Chet is, but the the instead, 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 instead shirt with the guy breaking through the instead, that's Chet to us.
0: Yeah. Iconic. So thanks.
1: Um, and, um, so I had a lot to do, um, with instead art, uh, not because I'm an artist, but I was definitely into graphics. And I think I, I had a fairly good eye for those kind of things. Um, so like, chet was my idea having him break through the instead was my idea uh and i'm not trying to take credit for it. it just i had a lot to do with what instead looked like from a graphic standpoint um in fact the the way instead is written um is i got that from a guy named john white who was going to school in florida who i was pen pals with and he was booking shows hardcore guy i think he's in i think he's in seattle now uh we're last time I saw him was at John Bunch's Memorial. It came down to that, but I've known that guy since probably 85, 86, you know, via pin pal. Um, but anyways, um, so that's where, that's where the cover concept came from. And the photo in life magazine was actually called bonds of friendship. So I hijacked the whole thing shamelessly. <laughs> um, cause I loved it. It, it. it had impact on me. And, uh, I think it had impact on a lot of other people as well. Um, and I'm, and I'm happy about that. So, so then, you know, um, you know, I, as I, I'm going back to this, I'm going to back up a little bit. Sorry. As I go back to this big John shows, I, I think I had it backwards. I think we played with final conflict first and then doggy style and at the doggy style show, um, Brad had invited Pat and Pat, Duvar and Longry from Uniform Choice to come see us. He's like, you know, like, I think you need to see these guys. I think you guys are going to dig them. And so we actually basically got a record deal from our second club show um, with Wishing Well. Um, And I say record deal loosely, you know, like it was just, it it wasn't like some big deal, you know what I mean? But uh, anyways, they're working at this point, they're working on staring into the sun. Right. And we wanted to record, um, with Chaz at Casboss studios. Um, but they wanted us to go into where they were recording staring into the sun because they had established a relationship with this guy, Rich Andrews, who was running that, stu- that studio. So, you know, we didn't know enough about recording to say, anything about it we were just like okay and that's what we went and did um we we paid for the recording out of our pocket um it took a long time to come out probably over two years to come out because i think we recorded it in 86 and it came out in 88 so yeah it was a it was uh i'm not gonna lie i I love pat dubar and pat longry they've they'd always been good to me but it was super disappointing and they were having some issues because they were they had made some deal with giant records and they weren't getting paid and you know there was a whole the whole thing going on there that i didn't really understand at the time but um but anyways so we go into radio tokyo and we we record bonds of friendship you know and, and super green super naive um knowing what I know now, I, I would have done it totally different, but there's people like you who really love that record, you know? And, and I, I love the record because it represents a time in my life that was fantastic. You know, I'm a junior in high school and I'm making an, an album, you know? And, uh, I, I, I don't regret it. You know, I just, I would have, I would have much. I wish I knew more because I would have put my foot down and said, "No, we're recording with Chaz at Casbah. That's what we're doing."
0: So, um, so you just don't like how the recording came out.
1: I don't. The um, you know at that time, um, you know, studios with a lot of carpet on the walls and ceilings and just being absolutely dead. Um, and I don't know what your background is in in recording. It was just very everything was very dry, and and then there was you know. It, 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 that record sounds like the eighties to me, you know what I mean? To some degree. Uh, and, and by that, I don't mean like, I don't know, like new wave. It just has like the snare sounds eighties to me on, on, on the drum kit. You know what I mean? But anyways, I digress. Uh, but that's essentially what happened. We, we had a record deal. We, we were asked to go into radio Tokyo and Venice beach and we recorded Bonzo friendship there
0: yeah I mean at least it came out right and right it, and you gotta do a record on wishing well records and and that's got that does have to be strange though, because these are dudes you look up to as heroes, and then still where you're very, very young, you're doing like semi business with them and feeling like yeah. a little bit of disappointment and like that grayness of life where like not everyone is a hero or a villain, it's like it just things get hard.
1: Right. Right. It, it, and it's, it's really tough when you're a young man to um, grapple with those emotions of being disappointed in your idols. Right. And, and, and it was, it was disappointing. You know, I I felt like to some degree, I felt like it was a business transaction for them. You know, I, I really don't think it was, it was just like, they were college kids and they were on, they were doing their own thing. And, you know, they were, they were evolving as, as artists, you know, for lack of a worse cliche, but that's what was happening to them. They were, they were, they were expanding themselves as as artists, as musicians, you know? And I didn't feel like, I felt like if we'd done it two years earlier, it would have been done quicker. It would have had all the attention I would have expected it to get and so on and so forth. And, you know, the other fact of the matter is the revelation at the same time, it asked us about doing a seven inch and we chose to go with wishing well because, we knew them, and Revelation wasn't anything at the time. It was—I I think maybe one was out. I don't think two was out. I think maybe Revelation one was out. Or what did they even have a release out by them? I don't—I don't remember when Rev Rev one came out. Huh. Anyways, uh, so we made a decision to go with Wishing Well instead of Rev, Rev and and uh, and then we felt like, whoa, did we make a mistake? Because we thought these are our local heroes. right here in fountain valley we're orange county guys um these guys make t-shirts uh in their garage by the thousand it seems like and so like it seemed like everything we needed was right here in our backyard why wouldn't we do it you know and as i as i say all this you know we were huge fans of youth of the day at that time as well so being asked by ray to do a seven inch with them was super flattering
0: Yeah, that's got to be the hardest decision ever.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know, and and so that's the thing, right? Did we make a wrong decision? I don't know. I I really don't care at this point. But is our legacy different? Have we put that R? You know, that star with an R on it.
0: Maybe that is interesting to think about. Like if if instead would have just been a rev band, Um, because it is part of the coolness of like the instead legacy is the labels that you do work with like, right. You know, doing wishing well, and then doing nemesis and then getting to be on epitaph, you know, and then, and then doing the discography with indecision, like these are all classic labels. So yeah, it it does add like a, a texture to the, the legacy that maybe you wouldn't have had if you were just on rev from day one. But then again, if you were just if you were a rev band, like yeah, you would have that rub too, you know, and been along for right, yeah,
1: it, it it kind of cuts both ways, right? Yeah, it's fair. and a huge one. You have a yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you you have a built-in fan base if you're on Revelation, and some people, you know, like I know when I first started getting into punk and hardcore, I wasn't I wasn't even thinking about the record label people were on, you know. So I think some people um, just assumed we were a rev band too. You know, um, when they're you know when they were new to the scene, um, but to us this all seemed very natural because, like I said, the shows were super diverse. Everything was really diverse in the beginning. It was very, um, dare I say, innocent. You know, like playing a show with with uh, you know Agnostic Front and Fang and the on a bill is not, was not unheard of. You know what I mean? And I, I can't even think of how many times we've played with NBC. You know what I mean? We played with NBC a lot in a lot of different places. And it's like, you guys played with NBC. Yeah. A lot. I loved it. I loved NBC. Um, but
0: anyways, go ahead. Do you, after the LP finally comes out, is there a spike mm-hmm. in popularity? Like does, oh yeah. That establishes you?
1: so yeah what happens is um we go on like a two two and a half month tour and right right as right after we get the records and and we have a bunch to sell at our shows with shirts and everything else and we do like a fall tour i believe we went out in, in october and we were out during thanksgiving because i remember having thanksgiving in a diner on the road um but anyways we um yeah, when we got home, we were shocked. We had taken a show. Ron had Ron Martinez had put on a show. He was, I think, his production com- company at the time. Company. It, he was calling himself like Christcraft or something like that, and he and he did some local shows. And he would just find places. And then this particular place was a Garden Grove, VFW uh, Hall, and it was instead no for an answer. Um. I think hard stance i forget who all was on there i, I, I don't even remember if final conflict was on there or not but anyways it was in we were shocked at how many people came out to see us we were headlining i do remember that um they shut down the power while we were while we were like three songs into our set because the place was just going bananas like people stage diving huge pit you know things were just it wasn't meant the BSW hall was not meant for what was happening it, you know? And, uh, so the cops came, the power got shut off. And I believe we were playing live and let live when they turned the power off and we played, I kept playing drums and everybody sang along as if everything was still plugged in. And it was truly one of my favorite moments in the band. Um, and for what I, I mean, it just, it kind of felt like, we were all of a sudden everybody's band. Like this is, this is our scene. This is ours. Not like in an ownership way, but it's like, it's like everybody was looking to us for answers. You know, like we became what uniform choice was to us. Like all of a sudden people are looking up to us and being influenced by us and hanging on our every word. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. And it has, it it has to feel like an insane validation too, because I'm assuming if you're doing a two and a half month U.S. tour, there's a lot of bad shows in there.
1: Oh so, man, there were terrible shows, terrible yeah. shows, but there were great ones too.
0: Well, absolutely. Can can you talk some of your memories of that first tour?
1: So I mean, we we really ran our band in a in a in a way that professionals run bands, and we didn't know that. We, we, that wasn't our, our objective, like, oh, what we need to do is make a record, have it come out, tour it, um, sell more records and shirts, make a shit ton of shirts, and, and really drive, put our name out there, and, but that's what we did. The shirts came from a learned experience of us, our personal um, uh, affinity for, for, for shirts from touring bands that came around here because everybody came through here. When I say here, I mean Orange County, L.A. Close enough that we could go to shows and buy band shirts. I mean, I remember one year specifically, telling my mom to give me 100 bucks, I was gonna do my back to school shopping at a Fender show. That's where I was gonna get all my shirts for the year. <laughs> and, I, and I absolutely did. And most of them were Wishing Well shirts, because um, Uniform Choice was playing the show, yeah. but, yeah. I mean, that's what right. I did. And and my mom was cool that she's like a hundred bucks for a year's worth of shirts. Here you go. You know? Yeah. So, so, um, anyways, just going back to your question, we, we just, we, we didn't know what to expect. We expected everything to be terrible. And it wasn't, of course there were nights where there was, you know, half a dozen people at some, you know, some poorly promoted. Uh, Wednesday night show in middle America but there was also great shows where we played with good local bands and I think what helped us too is we were very personable people like we didn't mind talking to people we were into hardcore man we were hardcore kids and we didn't think we were too cool we didn't think we were above anybody we liked all forms of punk and hardcore and I, you know I, I like to think like the band really lived by the live and let live for yourself motto you know like that's truly who we were now we definitely took some vegetarian stands and some some straight edge stands as the band evolved more into that but i still think we weren't terrible about shoving it down your throat we still accepted people for who they were and um i think when people came out and saw us and and, you know, even if it was by accident because they were going to see their friend's band open or whatever, um, it just played in our favor. And and we just kept doing the same thing over and over. Come home, play a couple of local shows while we wrote new material, record a record, hit the road, sell shirts and records, be cool to everybody, come home, do it again.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but on that tour, do you, do you have any memories? Like, do you want to? maybe you mentioned like a low light and the highlight.
1: So, so for me, the,
0: the highlight was,
1: um, we, we, um, basically set up home base at Roger Murray's house. And, um, at the time he was, he was, I don't know if he was married to Amy or, um, or if they were just, you know, a couple with, a, with their first daughter. But so, You've got to imagine, like, I'm into hardcore. I love agnostic Front. I, you know, and now I'm staying at this dude's house, and he is being so cool and, like, completely validating us. That's something else I probably need to add to that previous notion, too. Like, there were some heavy hitters that that came out and supported us and said good things about us and wore shirts at their shows. Roger put us up at his house and let us like run up and down the East coast and come back to his house and have a place to, to sleep. You know, he'd called out sick and hung out with us for work many days over. I think we stayed at his house for about two weeks and ran up and down the East coast, you know? And so for me, that was the best. Um, just absolutely incredible. Um, and then a low light probably would have been, I think we've played, in like, Wisconsin in some basement and, like, no one came, but the couple people that came really dug us and there were people there. It was, like, a bar that was, like, still allowed all-ages shows and some dude, like, that played in one of the opening bands was just, like, I mean, we're talking, like, the only way I could describe him is just kind of think G.G. Allen Light, but the dude, <laughs> but the dude, like, was so cool to us and loved us and I think he was just a punk dude that loved punk and, like us, just accepted everybody for what they were. And so, like, he passed his baseball hat around. It was like, everybody put some money in here. These guys got to get some gas to go to their next next destination, you know? Yeah. And, you know, he didn't collect a lot of money, of course, but he did it. Yeah, he tried. And then he he parlayed that into a ride to wherever he needed to go. But yeah. uh, Fair enough. that was probably a... I say that was a low-light, but it's kind of a combination of a low-light highlight because it just kind of showed how rad
0: people were. Yeah, yeah, you, you have a good attitude about it, and you know you get what you give. So, right, real quick on the Roger thing, do you think that mm-hmm. you made such a good connection? Do you think that's just because you know you both are sincere fans of music? Like a lot of people have have put out books or they talk on things, and and Roger stood out so much to me because it just comes across that he's like a real super fan. Of the music,
1: like he absolutely he absolutely is. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Um, you know, I don't think people realize what a huge record collector Roger is. Maybe they're starting to figure that out because I, I think there's been a couple of blogs posted and stuff like that. But but yeah, he's 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 rad, man. That guy knows his shit, and he's just a fucking rad human being. He, you know, it's one of those things, right? Like um, I think I heard you and Big Frank talk about something like this. Um, or touch on it or something. Um, there's like some bands have fans that you don't like, and so then you end up not liking the band. My example is going to be Pennywise. Like, it, it, for me, like, Pennywise guys, like, their fan base is a bunch of like, and, and listen, <laughs> this is. I know this is terrible. It sounds terrible, but it's like a bunch of flat, flat bill motocross riding big white sunglass having dudes like sure. that was their fan base to me. And it turned me off to the band. I actually think the band's great, but I dislike their fan base so much that it makes me not want any affiliation with, with anyone.
0: Sure. Yeah. I ah, mean
1: That sounds terrible.
0: N- no, no, no. <laughs> I think you're, you're saying what everyone thinks. I mean, you know, what the fan base is, but those first couple records are undeniable. I, I love them. I love them.
1: Well, and, you know, we didn't know anything about them and, and I'll give you a quick little sidebar here. They sent in their demo while we were recording uh, what we believe, was it a demo or a seven inch? I don't know. They sent something into epitaph while we were recording Um, what we believe. And so Brett comes to us one day in the studio and says, Hey, I just got this you guys listen to it and tell me what you think? And so he puts it on we sit there and listen to it. And we're like, yeah, man, this sounds a little bit like us and a little bit like bad religion. Like this is really cool. He's like, you guys think I should sign it? We're like, yeah, it's pretty fucking cool. You know? <laughs> and that was that, you know? And the next thing I know, um, Gavin's making that, doing the iconic Pennywise logo on their album, their first epitaph album.
0: Yeah.
1: Like he went from making our album cover for epitaph to theirs, you know? Yeah. And, thats That's how it happened, man.
0: that's so cool,
1: yeah, I'm not saying we're responsible for it, but we were that's definitely cool. asked our opinion,
0: yeah, and you and were there. you were there, yeah, yes. exactly that's so cool now the I think the best instead is the seven inch, the will make the difference, um, okay. comes out in nineteen eighty nine nemesis six songs seven inch, where every fucking song is a banger. there's not a lot of records like that, you know, I mean unless you want to talk minor threat. And like the greatest stuff, you know, right. um, how does this come about? That. How does this come about? And uh, are you songwriting? Who's songwriting and what's your approach for doing a seven inch after doing an LP?
1: Okay. So I think that it's clear to most people that have an ear for music, that the songwriting style changed a little bit from uh bonds of friendship to that seven inch. Um, a lot of that has to do with the fact that the McLaughlin brothers and Tony Garcia were no longer in. instead. When we made, when we made Bonds of Friendship, those guys were in the band. Now it's it's uh, me, Kevin, Bear, and Rich, and and we are swimming in the hardcore scene, and we are fully. I don't think you could be more immersed than we were, you know. So we had all these influences, especially East Coast New York hardcore, um, really influenced us, and I think that comes out a little bit in that seven inch too. Um one of the biggest influences on me personally, um, of, of, you know, like a, a, a straight edge genre was solid 13s one of my, that album's one of my favorite albums.
0: Um, I don't think that thing gets the love it deserves. Um, well, but it gets lots of love on this pod. Let me tell you.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm sure it does. I, I forget who I'm talking to. Here. <laughs> I, <laughs> what area code called me? Um, <laughs> So, you know, honestly, that, that album was huge for me and I never, uh, got to see them live, but I, that album, um, means a lot to me. So where was I going with this? What was the question?
0: Sorry. Uh, you're talking about the songwriting for bonds or excuse me for the song. Oh, yeah. We'll make a difference getting better.
1: So, you know, this is a lot of rich and I, um, you know, working together. Um, there had some, some definitely had some guitar riffs. That, that were used but it, it's mostly a lot of it is me and uh, me and rich um and so the, the writing dynamic changed you know from from bonds to, to there and that's that's essentially what it was there was there was conscious efforts to do things you know like like um we'll make the difference was very deliberate very very deliberate i remember Being uh, at the time, I lived in Tustin, and I remember him and I just being in my room for hours one day, just grinding that song out. So,
0: yeah, it's a thing that that is a common theme on this podcast. Is I say that there's never too many Unity songs, and yeah, that's that goes directly (laughs) to that song. You know, like absolutely what they will say is just another Unity song. The more the better. To us, they are wrong because. If if people ask you like what is hardcore, it's very hard to explain, right? Is it just like a little faster punk? But then like in the nineties, like there's legit hardcore bands, like Earth Crisis is a hardcore band, even though they sound yeah. more you know, sonically it's more metal. So it's like what is yeah. hardcore? And dialing that dialing that in or trying to dial in what it is, I try to come up with like common things of it has to be this, right? And that's right. so. That's so hard to do in something so big tent, you know. But
1: yeah, yeah, you know. What? I mean, I don't know. You you you're making me think about something that I hadn't put a lot of thought into before. You just said it. I, I think hardcore. Your example was integrity, right? Has has a has a um, social consciousness to it, you know, and and whereas say like metal is is generally in my opinion, more, um, nihilistic, uh, like old punk and fantasy driven. Uh, and you don't get a lot of that in hardcore. I don't think.
0: Right. I, I, I just think that there, you got to agree in unity and, and people, you know, in the room coming together and then also yeah. an, anti-racism and those are the, right. the, the, the two big pillars.
1: Yeah. 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 There's, there's a very communal, uh, element to hardcore for sure
0: yeah and so i i just love that song i love like i love when there's lyrics to a song that you look at it and it looks awesome too and so for like wow. you know that song like just been five, yeah like that <laughs> yeah. song that song being five lines it's like how do these guys lay down a classic song and it's five fucking lines like that's ridiculous you know like yeah. it looks like something you want to turn in and like impress a teacher you know like right like it's, yeah. a, it's, it's, a po- a, it's a
1: poem yes yeah, like a sonnet
0: <laughs> you know But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: Got to stick together. Got to stick together. You know, like there's not much to it. uh, No. Yeah. I mean,
0: we can go back to glue. That's perfect. Um, Right. But then also you do a a vegetarian song on the album, which is like so iconic and the way that you, you approach it is, is so visceral, you know? Um, Yeah. How do you guys decide to take a stab at that topic? And, you know, you, you really give it like the seriousness that it deserves.
1: Yeah, and I and I think that um you know like say like GV took a, a lighter um approach, right, with with uh cats and dogs, right? Um it was it was definitely deliberate again. Um we didn't we were we were trying to ride a line between being overbearing and forthright. And and to us, you know, it was very important to, to try and Like like straight edge came to me right like it was it it happened at a very important part of my life where I definitely could have went the wrong way and my life would be much different today. And look, I know plenty of people that were straight edge and aren't anymore, and that's all awesome. I, I really don't care about straight edge in that way. You know what I mean? I'm a 51 year old man. I just don't care about straight edge. And if that sounds bad to someone who's bearing the straight edge cross, I'm sorry, but know that by definition I'm still straight edge, you know? So I guess what I'm saying is, is that, you know, we were, we were trying to do it in a way that was absolutely serious and at the same time, simple. And without just being like, you know, uh, taking, say like a project X, X or a slapshot approach to, to it lyrically. Um, I think that we felt that strongly, but we didn't want to, that's not the way we wanted to present it. We wanted to present it as an option. Um, and and yet, uh, you
0: know, be serious about it, you know? Yeah. It, it's, it's epic. You know, one of the, Thanks, the most classic vegetarian songs ever, you know, up there Thanks. with, like you said, casting dogs, no more. And this. Yeah. Um, and all that,
1: you know, like no more, you know, yeah. And and all that shit's happening around us and we're all friends and we're all coming from the same place. Right. We're, we're we're absolutely, when you talk about GV youth of the day instead, when you talk about GV and youth of the day, there's not too many degrees of separation there anyways, but we're all friends. We're all into the same things. We're all, um, for the most part in the same, using the same moral compass. You know what I mean? Absolutely.
0: Do you tour? So you were saying before you put out a record, you go tour. Do you tour off the seven inch as well?
1: Yeah. So that one was a little bit different in that, with the experience we had with uh, with um, wishing well and, and the twelve inch, um, what we were interested in was recording the record and having it come out quick, and we were we were on a timeline. We knew when we wanted to go and we knew when we could record, and Frank was our guy. Big Frank um, has a lot to do with the, the success of Instead, and he'll be humble and, and downplay it, but he had a lot to do with our success. Um, he's, he's running Zed Records. We you know we bought our demos at Zed Records, so it was natural for us to make our demos, make a lyric sheet, put some stickers in it, put it in a, a, a manila envelope, and, uh, take it down there and have him put him in there on consignment. And, you know, he was, he was, yeah, absolutely. I'll do that. And then I think within the very next morning he calls us and said, Hey, I need more demos. I'm out. What we gave you, we gave you 20. No, I, I, I need more guys. So then it just was insane. We were just dubbing off demo demos, like just burning out everybody, dual cassette players all of our friends, family, just, we're blowing, I don't even know how many demos we made, to be honest with you, but it, it felt like thousands. It probably was hundreds, but it felt like thousands. Um, so it started there, we, were, we established a relationship with him. He's the the one who gives us our first big club show. He puts us on the, I don't know if he put us on there or he recommended that we put on, but he put us on uh, Bad Brain uh, when they were touring um, Eye Against Eye. And uh, so it was natural for us to, to reach out to Frank, who had started Nemesis, and say, hey, Frank, do you have any interest in doing you know, our 7-inch? And I, I think he was blown away. You know, I think he was like, what? You guys want me to do your 7-inch? And we're like, yeah, here's what we need. Can you do it? Yeah, I can do it. Get, get in the studio, get it done, and I will get it out within 30 days. And he did exactly what he said he would do. Now, could the could the artwork have been tightened up a little bit? Have we not rushed it? Probably, but it didn't matter. It looks like an eighties hardcore seven inch, you know. But that's how it came to be.
0: Yeah, because Frank is completely emerged in the scene as well, so he understands like your ideas, right? I need this out quick because we're gonna tour.
1: Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. Yeah, we had a mutual understanding of each other's capabilities and uh trusted each other completely um frank is one of my favorite people that i ever met through hardcore um a quick little sidebar i remember bringing him to my house in like 88 and i don't know if you've ever been around big frank or seen big frank um he uh you know he was tattooed heavily side black hair long hair and a ponytail baseball hat folded like a trucker um just a big big man big scary looking dude and i brought him home and my i I just remember seeing my dad and, and his girlfriend at the time just looking at this guy like oh what did you bring home and then frank as they're like digesting him like looking at him and taking it in he sees the cat and and this different side of Frank comes out and it just disarms everybody immediately because when you look at him, you're judging him. Right. That's just human nature, whether we, we can all pretend that we don't, but we do. Right. And, uh, him just being like, Oh yeah. Oh my God. I love cats. and just picking up the cat and petting it, like holding it near his face. And it's just like completely disarmed the room of my house. Like everybody's like, all right, this guy's cool.
0: <laughs> so but anyway, so red, Yeah. Does that is that he's, too? Much? But go ahead.
1: I will say there's nothing greater. Um, he came over to my house where I live now. When my 18 year old son was probably about, I want to say, I don't know, he was probably somewhere around 10 years old. I, I can't remember when you did the Carrie Nation show. I did, I did like a four song set with Carrie Nation, quite a few years, quite a few years back. And um, Frank came over to my house and just sat down and started playing video games with my kid. You know, again, he's walking in my house and, and my, my kids to some degree are used to seeing some characters, right? Just from me being who, you know, their father, I've got some dudes coming around now and again, but him walking in this, this large human being and just being like a teddy bear of a dude and just being like, so loving and, and like understanding, like, Oh, let me just sit down and play a video game with your son. I, and, and I'm sure maybe it meant something to him as well like i'm gonna play a game with steve's son just means like this matters to me you know what i mean but i just sat back there and like <laughs> dude my heart melted there's no other way to put
0: it like geez, man frank you're awesome uh, you know so rad so rad um sorry i got sidetracked no that's great that's what it's all about um is the touring off this is it even better or is it?
1: Oh, dude, yeah this this is this is game changer. So you know, like I said, we get back from the the bonds of friendship tour, and you know we're we're now we're big at home. Like we we can draw a lot of people any any day of the week, and at this particular time, like we probably we probably can play to a thousand people. At, like we if we book a show on a Wednesday night, if we book a show on a Saturday or Sunday we can play a venue that holds about a thousand people. That's how big hardcore was at that moment. So I'm not, I'm not about to say that that's what our tour was like because it wasn't, but the shows were much, much better. We were also out in the summer, which is a better time to tour other, other good bands are out where we you know we're, we're crossing paths um, with the, the other thing too, is I, I don't think people realize that not a lot of bands at that point were touring. like it's just not what people did. Like they, you get like a national act coming over from say Europe, you know, people like DDH and conflict and stuff like that. But you, American hardcore bands, you said today did it. Seven seconds did it. We did it. SNFU did it. Eventually. GB did it. And um, in this particular summer, us, GB SNFU, underdog. We're all like crossing paths constantly. We have some shows together. Then we, Go different ways. We have different people booking tours and whatnot, and um, it it was just yeah. Again, you know, you're just building. Every time I would tell any kid, uh, I hope it's the same these days. That every time you go out, you're making an impact on people. So whether there's three people there or three thousand, you know, do what you went there to do, and be cool to people, and it'll pay off. You know, I'm not, we, we didn't have intentions of getting big. That was never our motivation ever. Um, but we, we got very big, um, especially locally and, and to a large degree nationally as well. Um, and it just came from, from hard work, touring and being cool and playing any show that came our way. We, we didn't care who we played with. We, like I said, I, I mean, I love that so no problem there. Um, but, I mean, we played with the libido boys. We played with um, Pussy Galore. You know, like we we did some cool shit, man. Shit, I'm really glad we did. That was a little off the beaten path, and that was kind of our legacy too. Like you said, we didn't we didn't go Revelation. We went Wishing Well. We went um, Nemesis. We went Epitaph. We were we were on our own
0: trip. Yeah, let's talk about how you end up hooking up with Epitaph. Is this because? you're playing all the shows at the country club and bad religion is playing too. And you get to know the dudes.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, look, Brett Gurwitz is a savvy businessman. He really is. Um, he's many things, but that is one thing he, he really is. Um, and he, bad religion is, I think no control is out and they're, they're supporting that record. And yeah, we're playing a show at the country club with them. And their merch booth is next to our merch booth. And we're the kings of merch, without a doubt. Like, we sold so many shirts every night. It was ridiculous. We always had multiple colorways. We always had multiple designs. And long sleeves, short sleeves, tank tops. Like, we 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 did it up, man. Merch was a big deal, and we learned that from, from Witching World. And we did it shamelessly. So what Brett noticed was a couple of things. The first thing he noticed is how much merch, how much more merch we were selling than bad religion. If, if I was a betting man, I'd say we were selling shirts 10 to one to them that night, the night that that, 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 this all goes back to. Then, um, we get out and we play. And I think we were right before them on this show. So, you know, it was probably like a, a five band bill. And, and, you know, we were fourth and they were fifth. And, uh, you know, the headliner. And we were a force to be reckoned with at that time. And I'm not saying that like to toot my own horn, you know, you can look at videos of instead playing the country club in the, in the late eighties and see like, there were a lot of people. and, And there were a lot of people that were really into it and we were really into it, you know? Um, so, you know, he, he takes this all in, right. Doesn't say anything to us at the show except, Hey man, what's up? Hey, cool. Nice to meet you. Whatever. Right. Cause we didn't really know each other. So the next day or, or the following Monday, I think it was a Saturday night. I think Monday, um, he calls Kevin's house. Somehow he gets, I think he gets told of to big Frank, big Frank gives him Kevin's number and he calls Kevin and, and says, Hey, would, would you guys, be, uh, entertain doing a record on Epitaph records? And Kevin's like, uh, I never really thought about it. You know? We only have a couple of songs written, you know? And he's like, that's cool. You know, like, do you have something you can share with me? And he's like, we only really have a boombox version from rehearsals when we, you know, just started putting songs together. He's like, I can figure it out from there. So he's like, all right, let me talk to the guys. And so he, you know, you know, this is a different era. This is (laughs) landlines, con, you know, leaving voicemails on, you know, on cassette recorded voicemails in people's homes. Hey, call me back. It's important. Right. And uh, you know, he, he tells us the story I just told you and it's like, okay, well let's let's go down there. And um so we, we meet him at West Beach, um, which is where Epitaph Records was run out of at the time. Um and uh he he basically listens to the song, nods his head and goes, All right, love it, man. You guys are fucking fast, man. You guys are really fucking fast. <laughs> and he's like, uh let's do a record and we're like shit. Okay. And he's like, uh, about, uh, he's looking at, he's like literally looking at a calendar on the wall and there's a bunch of stuff written on it. And he's like, uh, how about two weeks from today? And we're like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. So we don't have, we've got those, those are the two or three songs we have. Like that's all we've got. Right. And, uh, he's like, okay, six weeks. And you know, again, as much as we've done, we're still, semi intimidated by him and he's being super cool and super gracious, but we're still just like, we don't have the internal fortitude to say, Hey, you know what? Like six weeks probably isn't enough for us to write a full album. We just go, okay. And, (laughs) and we do it, you know? And I think that comes out a little bit in the record. And I I put some shit online late recently. Um, I, I, forget. Oh, um, I, I found some old negatives of, of, uh, a photo shoot that was taken for what we believe of us in our van and around our van. And, um, somebody, Oh, I know what it was. Uh, eight, five, six, what's his name? Sonny. He, he had post. he had redone an old video that Joe Nelson had taken of us. And, uh, it, it was, it came out really good. It was a thank you show. And he was, he basically wrote an article, you know, like a short paragraph on, when he posted it saying, Hey, I really feel like instead doesn't get to do their deserve." you know, blah 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 and and whatever, right? And so I, I kind of what I did is I I did a copy and paste and reposted it on my on my Facebook page and just said, you know, I don't really think about this much um until somebody says something. But since he brought it up, you know, I wish we had one thing I wish we had done is taken more time and, and really refined what we believe. I think we would have made an incredible record had we spent a little bit more time on it. And Oh man, I got a lot of backlash for that. Like, what are you talking yeah. about? It's the greatest record ever. Because there's, there's, there's like, you, you love the seven inch, right?
0: Yeah, I have a, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, but keep, there's, there's like three camps. There's the bonds of friendship people. There's the, what we believe people. And, and there's the, the, we'll make the difference people. And like, they'll all claim that this one's the greatest because, right? So anyways, it's just, um, I I took some backlash on it, but I will tell you flatly, just like I was explaining, uh, you know, in that in that long-winded story, that I wish we had taken some more time, and I think we would have made a really, really incredible record. I think we shortchanged ourselves on some lyrics. Maybe some songs were a little longer than they should have been, trying to fill time, for example. Um, But nonetheless, it is what it is. That's that's our legacy, you
0: know. Well, how do you rank them if you're going to rank them one, two, three? First, being best. Ooh,
1: as as a fan of hardcore, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. uh, I'm gonna go. We'll we'll make the difference, and and it's gonna be a little controversial. I'm gonna go. go Bonds of friendship, especially if it was recorded better, and then what we believe, and I and I do it in that order. I'm not even gonna get into why I do it in that order, but that that's my order.
0: I think that's fair. Um
1: All right.
0: Yeah. I, I would go seven inch then what we believe and then Bonds of Friendship. But I, I I I could see that easily. Yeah. Um I mean what we believe it's got from the start on it. That might be the best <laughs> instead song. <laughs> I, Thanks, I man. I absolutely love that song. Uh you guys didn't play it in the mm-hmm. reunions, but uh What do you like about it? I think lyrically it's, it's fucking perfect. Like to write a nostalgia, uh, to write a nostalgic song, like in the moment is heavy. And I think you, you do it well. Like it it sums up the band really nicely, you know, and and
1: I'm going to give you credit, man. You, you really uh, read into the stuff. Well, Um, we were, to, and go ahead and finish your thought and I'll, 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 jump in.
0: Go ahead. Well, I just think it has, you, you, wax it perfectly as instead, like the, I'm not condemning those who choose metal riffs or write lyrics that don't make any sense. It's like, you're saying we do what we do, but like, I'm not against you. And, and, right. and that's kind of like a kind of what you've brushed on in this pod is, you know, you're going to these places. And the reason why you get along with everyone is because you're fans of music and you're not judging people. You know, so no, not at all. For you guys to be able to sum it up in a song and this is late in the instead career, but in your life you're still really young, obviously. Yeah. You know, I I I, I think it's nineteen
1: ninety, so yeah, I'm I'm maybe (laughs) twenty. Exactly.
0: Exactly. So for you guys to be able to like sum sum something up so nicely, I don't know, it's just it, it blows my mind how creative we are when we're young. Um and right? it's, it's, nice right? to see, it's nice to see these examples. Um, and that's just one of them, I think.
1: Yeah, cool, man. I, I appreciate that. That's, that's really well said. I think a, a couple of things, exactly what you said, right? And um, I think we knew that, that it was coming to an end for us. Um, nobody, None of us were saying it out, out loud to each other. Um, Kevin was getting married. His, his attention was waning. And we knew it. That was part of the struggle of what we believe. There's no secret there. Um, he, he, he caused us some extra work by being late with with deadlines and things like that. Um, and I, and we there's no ill will on it. It was what it was. He was he was newly in love and getting married, and it, and it affected his his output. You know, and uh, he wasn't as motivated about as instead as he was, and or hardcore for that matter. Um, and then to your point, like. There was a lot of schism in the scene, you know, like Youth of Today and shot had a schism, you know. There was there's was just all these beefs and that's one I can name in particular where we just didn't choose sides, man. Both bands were friends of ours. And they were quite different approaches to 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 straight edge, for example, you know. And uh we weren't choosing sides, man. It wasn't our it wasn't our beef. And I think both sides struggled with that for a minute. And then they were just like, ah, they're the fucking instead guys, you know, like these guys are just cool dudes, you know, they're, of course they're not taking a side. There's no side that needs to be taken. So, um, yeah, you know, like, and we knew like, um, bands like strife were coming up and, you know, judge and that heavier, like chug, chug straight edge was coming. And it was going to steamroll us. We could feel it, you know, and it wasn't, we weren't interested in going that route. Now, as I say that as a, as a grown man, it sounds kind of chicken shit to me, right? Like just do what you do shamelessly, just do it. But I think at that moment with, with, you know, where Kevin's head was at and, and we were just feeling like, well, there's no place to go from here. Um, really, for us. So if we're not 100% committed, let's let's call it a day, man. Let's go out and we're not hating each other. Everything's cool. You know, and that's essentially what happened. We we had booked a tour. Um, one thing I'll give Epitaph credit for too, Brett, specifically, is that like they wanted us to go to Europe and support the record. You know, like you need to go to Europe. And so we were in the process of booking that tour and, and uh, Desert Storm broke out. And then it's like, okay, well, we can't fly. It, it was recommended uh, in the beginning of that, if I, if my memory serves me correct, not to fly, right? Especially with a bunch of electronics and blah blah blah. So we had already like taken time off work and planned things around school and and whatnot. And so we just parlayed that into like a, a late spring tour in '91. And then we got home and did a couple rehearsals and. And we're like, Hey, you know what, man, this is just kind of what I said to you. We, we, we recognize that we weren't a hundred percent committed. And, and when I say that it really wasn't all of us, but we, we looked at us. we were truly a collective. We all had equal say in what was happening. Everybody's opinion mattered in what we did. And there were some disagreements, disagreements on things, you know, as far as like what we decided to do, whether it was. Shirt colorways, or how many shirts to make, or, uh, you know, uh, what record label to go with. We didn't always 100% agree on that, but there was always a, a good conversation, a healthy conversation about things. And we just all basically came to the conclusion that we were done as a band, we were done. And uh, so then we, we made the conscious decision to say, okay, we can go out big. And we can do some huge show and, and like bring in some big bangers, you know, seven seconds, real biscuits, whoever, you know, I don't even remember who we were thinking about at the time, but then we were like, you know what, we don't, we don't need that. Like, let's just go and play someplace too small for us and, and not tell anybody, don't tell your friends, don't tell anybody. And so we didn't, we, we booked the show at Spanky's which was way too small for us at that point in our career. And uh, we got on stage and announced it was our last show. And, and I literally remember seeing people weeping in the audience. And I remember being choked up, listening to Kevin talk. You know, like, wow, this is it, man. But anyways.
0: What are your other memories from that show?
1: Oh, man, that show was Unreal there were people just crawling on the wall, sweat dripping off the ceiling, um, people crying, everybody singing along. Everybody was on like, you know, they way oversold the place. There were people outside. There were so many people on stage that we kept like, I remember Baron rich just kept getting knocked into my drum set. I think I got hit with a symbol falling over on me and, and it was all good. Like it was there it was nothing bad. It was all good, man. But uh, I was, I, it, it's weird, you know, like it it was so surreal. It was like, I was watching instead from the outside play because I took so much time as I was playing drums to just look around at the faces and see like, it, it was a weird range of emotions I was seeing from people, people super psyched and super into it people super sad and crying and and like literally like shaking their head at me like why why are you guys doing this you know um, so realizing you know like this is the last time I'm going to be playing with these guys you know um, so it's just this weird wide range of emotions every song mattered everybody sang along to every song um, we had to keep trying to back people up off the stage which was fine um, but it was it was truly a, a high point of my life.
0: Yeah, that's that's super rad. Um, moving on, a mm-hmm. a cool little uh, I don't know notch on the bedpost, whatever you want to say. Um, sure, is you guys got bootlegged by Lost and Found in 1988 or 1998? Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's just kind of probably shitty at the time, but cool now. You
1: know, I I never really cared about that stuff. Um, I we didn't make a lot of money selling records. No one did. You know, we made money selling shirts and playing shows. And so, you know, uh, I I just never got too fired up about that kind of stuff, uh, personally. And I don't really think anybody in instead did either.
0: Yeah, they were they're interesting for us people that got into hardcore in the '90s though because. You know, you talk about Stalag 13 in control. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that's how I was able to hear that record. You know, is yeah. they bootlegged it because Upstart had been gone for a long time and Dr. Strange didn't put out until the 2000s. So, right. So, I mean, it, it serves a purpose. Um, you do a 18 or A18 in nineteen ninety eight. Yeah. Uh, yep. Just what, what are your thoughts on doing this band and, and your memories of it?
1: So. Um... Mike Hartsfield called me, hold told me somewhere out of the blue. Um, I, had, I hadn't talked to him in a long time. After instead, I, I did some uh, indie rock, college rock, whatever you want to call it, bands. And, uh, you know, I, I always kept an ear to hardcore. I never went away from it. But um, I was always into all kinds of music, like I told you at the beginning of the podcast, you know. Um, and um, he had got a hold of me and... I think the way he sold it to me, cause I feel I might be wrong because he's hit me up so many times since I'm in 18 to do different things. Um, Mike, Mike's notorious and relentless and I love him. Um, he, um, he basically said, Hey, me and Isaac have these couple of songs. Would you, we, we don't know anybody that's your age, our age, that's straight edge anymore. You know, and, and it's important to us that this is a straight edge band. And so he, I don't know if he, I don't think he had anything to show me. He didn't because I recorded the demo and, uh, but, but they did have two songs and they were good. And, uh, I said, all right, cool. You know what? Let's do it. You know, like we'll do a seven inch or whatever. The problem with me is that I'm all in. Like I work like that's. I don't know any other way to be in a band than to just be like, Oh, we're doing this. Let's go. And so quickly what happened was I, I hesitate to say this, but I almost took over, you know, like I was like, Oh, you know, I started writing all kinds. Of, I got motivated. I started writing all kinds of songs. I could play guitar well enough to write songs. And so I would bring them risks and be like, what do you think of this? And they're like, fuck, this is awesome. You know? And so I I basically wrote I think of the first album, I wrote over half of it. The second album, what was that album called?
0: I don't have it Forever in front of me. Nothing. I don't have it in front of, I, of me, but Mike did say that you wrote most of the second album, I believe.
1: Yeah, I, I think I wrote like ninety percent of it. Um um and I don't know how people feel about them M eighteen. I don't think people cared much. Um
0: but I, I, I
1: did enjoy it uh, for the most part. And then I, and then I didn't. And when I didn't, I was done. And, uh, I I basically, I had a hard time because I worked really hard and really fast. And, um, this is no offense to any of those guys, but at the same time, I'm not, I, I can't apologize for my work ethic. You know, I, I was like, let's go, let's go, let's go. You know, like, and I think the thing they always make fun of me for is I said, if you want to act like amateurs, you'll get treated like amateurs, you know? And, uh, you know, it, it, it sounds shitty, but I said it in a, in a funny way. Um, you know, it's, it's not what you say, how you say it. Right. And I, I delivered that message, um, in a serious, but, but kind way. And I just kind of, uh, I kind of viewed them as, as lovable dis- dipshits to some degree you know, and and I, I mean, absolutely, I've got nothing but love in my heart for those guys. I, I don't mean that in a derogatory way, you know, um, but we're just, we're just in different places in the way we, we work in bands.
0: That makes sense. Um, it's either 03 or 04, you get instead back together. Um, what, go, what, what goes into this? So
1: um, Dave Mandel approaches us out of nowhere about the possibility of doing an, a complete and said discography. And so, you know, we kick it around for a little while and, and Dave is very good at, at motivating you. Um, I, I don't even know if he realizes what a gift he has for it, but you know, as you, as you're kind of talking through things and trying to talk yourself out of doing things, He's real good at, at talking you into things, you know? And so it was like, we had wrote another three songs after before instead broke up. Right. And so we were talking about, okay, let's do it in reverse chronological order. Um, you know, all these different ideas everywhere. Um, and, and it was like, yeah, no, if you guys can find that old cassette of the three songs you wrote, why don't you guys, learn it and go into the studio with Paul minor and we'll put those on there unfinished instead. That'll even give it more, more merit, more credibility, you know, make it a little more interesting to people. And so, you know, then we were just like, all right, let's do it. You know? And, and so that's, so we started working on this, on this, um, on this discography, pulling together old photos and you start getting very nostalgic about everything. Right wow, man, we got along so good. We left, you know, we, we parted on good terms. There's, there's absolutely, um, zero animosity between us. There was no malice at the time. Like, and you know, we're in there and we're working and, and, and everybody like Paul Miner and him, just like, this is fucking rad guys. You guys should do some shows. And we're like, get the fuck out of here. We're not doing shows. And, uh, you know, <laughs> It's funny, in 04, right? 16 years ago, we're like, we're old men. No way, you know? Um, but eventually, um, I, I, I don't remember how who said what, but this is what was thrown out there. If CBGBs will, will book an instead show, then we will do reunion shows. Right. And that was that. BBGees was like, yeah, we would love to do an instead show, and then we were kind of like, we're men of our words. We're like, okay, I guess we're doing a reunion show on the East Coast, and so we didn't think anything of it. We we started getting ready for it, and uh, man, it was just like getting on a bike, you know, like you just don't forget, and all those, uh, you know, using an athletic term, all those twitch muscles start just firing where they're supposed to. Transitions. It was like we never quit playing, like quickly. And that, so that's mind blowing. They're like, wow, we can do this. And so we booked those, those, uh, those three shows. It was Jersey, cbgb's And, uh, I think it was a Rhode Island show and they were all great. They were super fun. And we, the other thing we did, um, except for maybe the CBGB shows, I don't, I don't remember. I know we had kill your idols open, um, as one of the bands, but generally speaking, did we have the first step on that show. I don't remember. Anyways, um, it was imp- as as it was always for instead. It was important to us to to have complete control over who we put on the bill because we wanted to give we. It was always important to us to have up and coming bands give them a chance. Like we got a chance. We always felt it necessary to do what was done to us. You know, and uh, and then there started to be some. I don't want to say backlash, but I don't know what to call it, but people were bummed out that we weren't doing California shows. Like, Hey man, what the fuck? You guys are a California band. What do you mean? You're not doing California shows. And we were just, we were just like, nobody gives a shit about us. Like we're long gone. Like we're an afterthought. And, uh, and then golden Voice comes calling and, and they're like, Hey, you know, we, you know, blood's in the water. Let's do this. And we're like, shit, man. So then we're like, then we get the big idea. Hey, let's do something, rat. Let's get youth of the day. So youth of the day, seven seconds instead, and let's do um, the glass house in Pomona. And so seven seconds has a conflict; they can't do it when we want to do it. And youth of the day wants to do something even bigger and crazier than what we're interested in doing, and it and it becomes clear to us that it's about more than just putting on a cool reunion show. Um, I think that um, you probably know because you seem well-connected and well, well-informed that we weren't doing it for money. We, we absolutely were not doing it for money and no, no disrespect to bands who, who do do it for money because everybody should get paid. You spend, people don't realize how much money you spend being in a band with rehearsals and vans breaking down and equipment getting stolen and all that stuff. Right. So I have no qualms with people getting paid, but for us, we just wanted to do a, a, a like a ten dollars show, and we wanted um, we wanted it to be authentic. It was really important to us that it was as we remembered it. And uh, in dealing with um, youth of today, it, it was clear that they wanted to do, you know, turn it into a, a more of a money thing. And so we were like, okay, never mind and then we just and then it just turned out where we decided it was better to do back-to-back nights at uh, at the Showcase Theater and I'm really glad we decided to do it that way and put some young and up-and-comers on, on the bill and, and had a great time.
0: Yeah, those shows were awesome. I uh, I had a great time and then also I, I saw you play in Ventura. Did you go to those? Yeah, I went to them. I went at least one night because I saw you at Showcase right. and then you played Ventura as well.
1: Ventura, okay, that was in that small club. That wasn't a that feels like that wasn't a very good turnout at that show.
0: No, it wasn't, but the show was great. Yeah, thanks. And we played with a rad band too. Who, who played with us at that? Betrayed I and think... then betrayed played, and then also the greatest band on earth, Retaliate. My band. Nice. <laughs> but, uh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, no, yeah. yeah. There great. we go. Yeah, yeah. No, and and it was it was a small turnout, and, but again, that felt that that felt authentic, and I don't think we played any less hard because it wasn't a packed. Um, showcase theater show or CBGBs. you know, we played exactly the same way we would have played, and I, I hope you can attest to that, seeing us in both environments.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I've never heard anyone say bad things about it instead. Just, I don't know, everything about it, I love. So, uh, you're talking to the wrong guy if we're looking for criticism. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. No, I,
1: I appreciate that. Yeah,
0: yeah. no, it,
1: it, it, it It's weird, you know, because I have this thing where it's almost, it seems like it's not cool to be in a posi band or be, you know, be affiliated with a posse band. Like instead was, you know, and, and to be totally transparent, like that's just the band I was in. Like I was really into infest and negative approach. And like, if I had my rathers, I, I would have rather played in some angry hardcore band. Um, and, and I, and that's, I'm, I don't want it to make it seem like I'm totally happy with what I did instead and I have no regret, but I think there's a weird stigma attached to it to some degree. And maybe I'm wrong, but it's what it feels like sometimes.
0: Yeah. I mean, there, there is a little bit of, of thoughts on like posy bands like that. But I think that when you dial into the classic instead stuff, you see that there's, there's more to it. Like lyrically, right. it gets really good. Um, Thanks, man. plus, I mean, you're a living Testament to the, the greatest piece of hardcore, which is like still staying friends. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's a huge piece of it. Like you guys didn't hate each other. You guys like did a band for the right reason. You even did reunions for the right reason. You're still friends. And then we can move on to the last thing here to talk about, which is alligators, which is basically instead plus Roger from agnostic front on vocals. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, you know, Mandel did it and, uh, Remember seeing it and I was just like, Oh my god, it's instead with Roger singing, like this is gonna be the greatest thing ever. And it was. I mean, for a for a side project band, this is about as good as it gets. You know, and and I I apologize, you know, if if you think it's more than a side project, but but it is like at least for Roger it is. At least for Roger it was, right? Absolutely. It absolutely is. We've never played live. Okay, there you go. Yeah, so how, how do you put this band together? And how do you feel about those first uh, two Seven Inches?
1: So, so um, you know, Rich is a funny dude. I've been playing music with Rich my whole life. Um, in in, in uh, indie rock bands and hardcore bands. The only band he wasn't in with me, or two bands he wasn't in with me, were Carrie Nation and MMA Eighteen, And, uh, but he, he he's a funny dude. Like, he just calls me one day, Says all right, and he probably said it just like this: "All right, fucko, uh, me and me, you and Roger are doing a record, and and then uh, you know Bear, Bear was brought into the fold to play guitar on it. But basically, it was me, you, and Roger making a record finally. And I'm like, okay. And so, essentially, what happened is we went to a rehearsal studio, and he taught me songs. And as he was teaching me the songs, Paul Miner was setting up some stuff on his laptop in a rehearsal studio and recorded the first seven inch. Um as I was learning them and, and the thought process there was we wanted to capture it as captured as I was learning it so it wasn't over tight. So it sounded like old like legitimate old school hardcore that wasn't overproduced or overly tight. Not that there's anything wrong with those things. It's just not what we wanted. You know? Um so that's how the, the first seven inch came to be and Essentially, it got repeated on the, the second 7-inch, but we went to Paul's studio and did it there. I learned songs in the studio there. They hit record. We captured it. And that was it, man. And, and Rich is really the brainchild behind 98% of it. He lyric, lyric, He's telling Roger, here's your lyrics. And, and he, he literally told Roger, I don't want this sounding like any of this new bullshit agnostic front voice thing you're doing. Like, I want, I want victim in pain, Roger. That's who's singing this. And, uh, and like, if he started to drift off that path, man, Rich was on him. No, no, no. You know, um, right, wrong or indifferent. That's just the way it was approached. You know? Um, yeah, I loved it. It's, it's a good time. And, and we're getting ready to do some more stuff. Actually. Uh, it's, it's strange that you are coincidental that you, that you, contact me about doing this podcast and ask me about this because in a couple of weeks I'll be learning some new alligator songs.
0: Yeah. So cool. And it will have happened by the time this came out. Cause we're a few weeks out from this airing. Not, not to, <laughs> not to, not to peel the curtain back for everyone too much, but, uh, and that's that, <laughs> right. that's funny that you dial in on Roger's voice. So a little bit, just cause man, he's someone where I've enjoyed the whole ride. I love like right. every single era, including every, all the new stuff. and, they are still something special live
1: you know those guys I'm sick of it all they are professional bands they are professional hardcore bands and i and i'm not saying that with anything but admiration those guys um know what they're doing they know how to do it and they deliver every fucking time
0: yeah yeah i mean they just they're the perfect like forebearers for it because they take the art mm-hmm. they take the art and like do it in such a way like professional that that is a proper term to use although like that word could be like misstrewed, i guess yeah but uh absolutely no i mean they are because i've I've seen both those bands in small clubs in the last couple years and when i say cool. small like i saw sigvid all last year you know at a i don't know a 150 cap and like these are yeah. these are dudes that they're great in front of 5,000 or that 150, yeah. you know? It, it's just, yeah. it's amazing. So, uh, but yeah, I, I guess I'm just a fan. And uh, we should say you can still get all that alligator stuff. Came out in Decision. Um, I think you can order if they're still B9, put it out in 2012. That's just a re-release, mm-hmm. I believe.
1: Yeah, I don't think, I think they what they did is they took, and, and I, I have to apologize because I, I sound like an asshole, but I I'm, I think it's just both 7-inches um, on a
0: 12-inch. Right, because right. Indecision did the two 7-inches, put it on CD. B9 just does the vinyl. Um, yeah, that's it, correct. Yeah, and then Indecision, they did the Instead discography in O two like we had mentioned, but it came out on vinyl in 2016, and it's epic, so everyone should order that, indecisionrecords.com, because, um, man, that's a this is a nice piece of art. Have you held that in your hand before? What's that? The, uh, the instead discography on vinyl.
1: Oh yeah, man. I love that thing. I- I'm really happy with the way that turned out.
0: Yeah. So epic double LP and, uh, everyone should get that. So, uh,
1: man, I feel like there's a bazillion different, uh, colors of vinyl available too. I'm not a hundred percent certain on what's still available, but
0: yeah, well go to indecisionrecords.com and figure it out. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Dave's a record collector, so he's he's going to have fun with it. Right. Um, he's going to do it right. That's right. So, Steve, thanks so much for being generous with your time. I appreciate it.
1: Absolutely, man. I, I appreciate the fact that you have any interest in something, you know, anything that I've done. Um, I'm always happy to talk about it as best I can, you know. Um, one thing that, that I think comes out, uh, with instead is sometimes it almost seems boring to me because we got along and things went well, you know? Yeah. But,
0: you you uh, don't, you don't have the whole like behind the music story where, yeah, right. You, you exactly. Know, drug addiction, then break up and then you get back together 20 years later.
1: Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen like the, the, um, the, the short instead documentary. Um, I think somebody uploaded it to YouTube, but, uh, it, it, it like, if I watch, like, say, even, like, the Slapshot documentary, man, that things like, bums me out. And, and, you know, it's like a a ride through emotions. Where ours is just, like, the conversation we just had, you know? Like, it's not, there's no drama in it. It's just, yeah, we did this and we did that. And we all got along cool and then we broke up and then we did some reunion shows. And, yeah, here we are. Awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah still buddies. <laughs> yeah, we just played music. Yeah. And the show got better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was wild. So, Steve, do you feel like you've been well represented in 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 this interview? You feel okay about it? Oh yeah, dude, yeah for sure.
1: Yeah, the only thing you didn't ask me about that that I thought I'd get asked about, and I'm not complaining, was Carry Nation.
0: Yeah, I fucked up on that. Um, <laughs> I, I I did. I, do a, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, I did a fair amount of talk on Carry Nation on the Big Frank Pod. Um, True, fair enough. Is there is there anything you want to brush on that?
1: You know, on Big pranks, I, I think he made one mistake. I think we, we introduced him to Vision. Uh, introduced him to Vision for Nemesis. Oh. Um, we went and did a spring tour with them. This is a Rad and story. Um, we, I don't even know how we got set up, but basically we got the big idea to fly to the East Coast uh, during spring break and play, you know, rattle off like 10 shows over spring break. And we chose the East Coast because you can cover so much ground there and play so many, big cities right because they're all close enough in proximity right so somehow we got hooked up with vision and it was literally Kevin calling Dave and and like and Dave being Dave was like all right man yeah cool man let's do this like he was gung ho and my favorite instead tour for sure is that spring tour with with vision and we became great friends um it's tragic you know that, that Dave passed away um but I still keep up with those guys, you know, on, on Facebook and not even superficially, like we message each other every now and again, you know? And, uh, it's cool, man. Like there's, there's just been some bonds forged over, you know, three decades plus that have, you know, to this day are still bearing fruit and it, it blows my mind. But, um, yeah, so that's the only thing, uh, just going back to specifically what you asked, that would be the only thing I would question Big Frank on. I don't want to question Big Frank on anything, to be honest with you, but I think he might have been a little, I think he said Kane from Cargo is the one who put him in touch with him, but I, I think we actually did.
0: Um, no, I'm just glad I got straightened out on on the 185 miles South podcast, so...
1: <laughs> and yeah, you let everyone's Frank, allowed to be let wrong Frank ones. know what I said. I'm gonna text him as soon as I get <laughs> off here and be like, Look, jerk, I listened to your I listened to your interview today and here's the many places you were wrong. That's right. And, uh, but uh but yeah, you know, I, I don't remember he was talking about instead and I mean uh uh Carry Nation being a side project. Um I think this came across in, in Frank's uh interview and I I didn't hang on every word, I was working while I was listening to it and so people were interrupting me and I'm Working on stupid spreadsheets and whatnot, um, but I think he he um, basically said no. Nah, it was always intended to be a side project, and I think that was true for everybody but Frank. Um, Frank really wanted to do an album. Um, he wanted to do more with it than, than Like I was, I was so busy with instead, I barely had time to do it. But as I say this, I loved Carrie Nation. I absolutely loved it. Um, again, more like where I was coming from personally, a little darker, a little angrier, you know. Um, so that it, it kind of stroked that bone for me, you know what I mean? And uh, it's unfortunate that I think that that uh, shocking Dan O'Mahony's ego got in his way, and uh, I'm not afraid to say that. Dan's got a big ego, he knows he's got a big ego. And I think that really was the end of the band, his ego. Now, you could argue that maybe Frank played into that too. We're talking about, but you're talking about guys that are coming from very successful bands playing in a band together, right? But when those two bohemoths um, almost come to blows on a, on a stage at, at Spanky's um, Cafe, I'm like, I'm done. I don't need this. I've, like, I have a good time playing music. This is not fun. Breaking you two idiots up. Over what? you know, stupid shit. So anyways, um, it's a shame. Uh, Carrie nation had a bunch of good songs written that I, I honestly felt when I left the band, cause I left on the spot that night. Um, I, I just assumed they'd pick up another drummer and, and carry on, but they, they didn't. Um, and I, I think that's a shame. Cause I think there was a uh, roughly 10 to 12 other songs written that were really, really good, better than the seven inch probably.
0: That's a bummer because, yeah, that could have been a a really good LP. Um, Yeah. The songs are epic on the 7-inch, you know, and I think that the style almost lends itself better to an LP.
1: Yeah, I agree with you 100%. 100%. There was, uh, yeah, like I said, some darker elements, some longer intros, just some, like, there was this, it it was menacing almost to me um, when I listen to it now not that I listen to it cause I don't, if I play it for somebody and I'm hearing it, that's <laughs> usually how it happens. Yeah. It has like a, a menacing vibe to it to me.
0: Yeah. There's just a lot there. It is. It's good creative songwriting. Um, especially like for the time there, there's like, I don't know, there's buildups and so forth that it doesn't really, I don't know on an LP. It just could have even worked better. I think if they I if, agree with you, I, I understand played, what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hard to put it out there, but, uh, yeah, well, I really appreciate your time, Steve. And uh, hey, I'm, gl- likewise, I'm, I'm glad you set me straight on uh, the Carry Nation stuff.
1: <laughs> is, is- yeah, I don't want I don't want Frank fucking up my legacy, man. I got to get that shit <laughs> handled. Yeah. I'm literally going to get off the phone with you, and I'm going to text you and be like, "Hey, heads up, I corrected you. <laughs> I'm going to erase you." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I'm, <laughs> I'm going I'm I'm to. We might have to fight. It's okay. He's, he's, <laughs> he's, he's had heart surgery. I'm feeling I'm feeling good.
0: Yeah. No, for <laughs> sure. No, it's all you. You you can text him. I'll I'll text him tomorrow. Right on, man. All right, Steve. Thanks so much. Hey, thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Do be, be well.